it's, I mean, it's, it's actually kind of hard to believe that it's the first Sunday of Advent. At least it is for me. It seems like it snuck up on me. And it seems like every year I say that same thing, that Advent sneaks up on me. Um, I don't know. How do you guys feel? Does, does it seem normal? Yeah, Jeannie. It's, it, I cannot believe that it's, quote unquote, the Christmas season, even though Costco started it in October. Maybe September. I don't know. Uh, but the fact, uh, the fact that Advent sneaks up on me every year is the reason I so appreciate the season. Frankly, I need this season. I need this season because if I don't have Advent sneak a gump on me, Christmas is going to sneak up on me. Advent is the season of anticipation and preparation. A season of preparing our hearts and our minds to receive Jesus afresh. It's a season of, a, a, a season of anticipating what that encounter with Jesus could be like. So during Advent, what do we do? We sing songs and we set our hearts on minds on the coming of Jesus. We read scriptures and we hear sermons that deal with birth narratives and ancient prophecies about Jesus coming. That is, that is cute. Okay. Um, in our family, maybe in your family, we have things like an Advent devotional. We have Advent wreaths. Maybe you do that with, the, with your friends or your small group or your kids or your spouse or whomever. Um, but we reflect on the fact that nearly 2,000 years ago, God became flesh and dwelt among us. Ever since Jesus was born, died, and resurrected... Followers of his have celebrated his incarnation, his putting on flesh, right? Becoming a human being. But beyond that, they've also longed for his return. So this season is about anticipation and about celebrating that Jesus came at one time, put on flesh and dwelt among us, but also we're longing for his return. Now, what are you anticipating this Advent season? What are you longing for in your heart and hearts? It's an important question. Most of us, I would guess, on the surface, anticipate things that we can count on, things that come around every time this year, like busy stores or being with family and the joy and sorrow that being with family can bring. We anticipate maybe Christmas parties, decorations, or not getting invited to certain Christmas parties. We anticipate yet another rock musician coming out with yet another Christmas album. What is it going to be? Is Lady Gaga going to come out with one? Or does she already? I don't even know. But, you know, we, the, the typical things that come around every year. But do we often at this season anticipate a life change? Do we anticipate a world change? I mean, after all, this season is all about anticipating the one who changed the course of history and promises to complete his work on his day of return. That is a gigantic thing to be anticipating. And I, I just want to admit to you that it is hard for me to keep that reality in my mind. It's hard for me to keep that reality in my heart because I'm so consumed by the little things that this season also brings. So, let's enter the story of the one who can change our lives. Would you stand with me as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, and we're just going to do verses 1 through 7 today. This is the record of the genealogy. Literally, here's what it means. This is the book of beginnings of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, 
Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Abinabdab, and Abinabdab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Father, we thank you for your gospel, for your good news. Help us to find it in a list of names. Thank you that you've given us your word, that your word has survived all these years. We have it in our hands today. We pray, Lord, that you would, you would cause it to be living and active through your Holy Spirit, that it would change our lives, not just inform our heads. Amen. You may be seated. So not exactly the Christmas or Advent scripture you had in mind, right? Unless you looked at Facebook and saw, you know, what, what we're actually going to be covering. Where, where are the angels, right? Where's Mary? Where's the shepherds? This is not what I expected, you may be thinking. This is going to be boring. It is odd, I admit, okay? I freely admit that. In fact, if you are familiar with the lectionary, the lectionary goes on a three-year cycle. It's in this book, Year A, B, and C. And what it does is gives preachers a, um, a suggestion of things to preach on every Sunday of the year. This happens to be year A. Year A, the Advent texts are all out of Matthew's Gospel. Guess how many weeks are dedicated to the genealogy? None. None. It's not even in there. So why, why on earth would we be focusing two weeks on the genealogy? What's the deal? Well, because these seemingly boring list of names, this list is full of gospel. It's full of good news. So let's make a deal, okay? You and me, let's make a deal. You stick with me for these two weeks, and I promise that your understanding of Matthew's whole gospel and of Advent will be intensified. Okay, it's going to be intensified. So that, that's the deal. You stick with me for these two weeks, and then I promise we'll get to, to more stuff like Joseph and, and Wiseman and stuff. Okay, let's get a grip on what's going on here. It's actually very helpful to me, and I, I think it's going to be helpful to all of us, that this list of names is so weird. If Jesus were born today, and let's say you were hanging out with him, you're one of his disciples, I can't imagine one of us beginning the account of Jesus' life like this, with a genealogy. Now, what would we do today? We'd probably do like a documentary, right? Or we, we would write some exciting thing. There'd be a mini-series on TV, or HBO would do a special. Or you'd have a Discovery Channel show where Mike Rowe follows Jesus around, and maybe he'd do a dirty jobs on the foot washing or something like that. But, I mean, it would be way more exciting, I think, if we did it today. But it's important for us to see how foreign this text is, how old it is. And the reason that that's important is because Jesus actually came to earth in a time, in a specific place, as a specific person. Jesus is not an ideal. He's not a philosophy. He's not merely a guy who gave us a bunch of good moral principles to live by. Jesus is the expected fulfillment of a promise that God made to a man. 
And that man was Abraham. But Jesus fulfilled that promise in a very unexpected way. Now, check this out. I didn't even plan this, but I wish I could take credit for it. You know how we've been looking in Genesis the past few weeks? If you're new with us tonight, we've been looking in Genesis the last few weeks. Uh, for, for almost, I think, over two months now, we've been looking at Genesis 1 all the way to chapter 11. So that's creation all the way through the Tower of Babel story. And what we've learned are lots of things, but here's three basic things that we learned. God created all things and called them good. That means you, that means the trees, the stars, the sun, everything, and he called it good. Very good, in fact. All right? Number two, God created men and women to represent him to all of creation. He says, I made you, men and women, in my image. And what our vocation is, is to go around and to reflect God's character to each other. To take good care of creation, to take good care of each other. And when we do that, we're actually reflecting what God is like. Okay? That's what we're supposed to do. And the third thing that we learned is that we really suck at that. Okay, people constantly rebel against God, and frankly, we all try to be our own gods. We all try to set up our own rules, okay? Now, in Genesis 12, which we're going to get to next fall, but you'll probably forget, so we'll cover it a little bit right now. In Genesis 12, God comes up with a plan. He, I mean, he created us, right? Then we've got the fall in the Garden of Eden. We've got Cain and Abel screwing things up. Then we've got Noah, and he tries to start it all over with the flood. That doesn't work. And then the Tower of Babel. What's a God to do? He makes a plan to save the world through a person, through a family. And he goes to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I want to save the world through you. I'm, of course, I'm uh, paraphrasing. Uh, but basically, this, he makes this covenant with Abraham. He says, I want you to leave your ancestors. I want you to leave the land where you are. I want you to go to a land I'm going to show you, and I'm going to give you and your descendants this land. And here's the deal. I'm going to bless you so that you could be a blessing. So that you could be a blessing, not only just to your own family, but to every nation and person in the world. And that way, all the people will be blessed by you and they'll say, why are you blessing me? And you'll say, because God is blessing you. And that way, all the nations will come to know God as he really is and to love him. It's a great salvation plan. Okay, so Abraham says, okay, I'll do this. He, he has some faith and he follows God. He goes to this land and then God gives him this son, Isaac. And Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had lots of sons. And there's lots more of these stories. We'll get to them next year, but here's the gist, right? Israel has ups and downs and periods of obedience and periods of disobedience. And finally, they get a king, a really good king named David. David was the most famous king in all of Israel. And God told David, David, you are such a man after my own heart that I am going to promise you this. Your line will never lack a person on the throne. That one day, through your bloodline, through your family, I'm going to bring the Messiah, the Savior of the entire world. Big deal. All right? Well, after David's rule, Solomon, his son, takes over. And Sol Solomon, I mean, guy started off really well. But then he married like thousand wives or something and then he he started idolatry and um, yeah Solomon screwed it up really bad and the kings after Solomon most of them were really bad and some of them were okay but most of them were really bad and so what happens is the people of Israel finally God just says you know what you guys want to worship other gods go for it and this nation named Babylon big bad Babylon from the Tower of Babel story remember okay later. Uh, but Babylon comes in and takes the people 
captive, takes him back to Babylon, and Israel was in exile. Now, during this period of exile is when you get prophets, like the prophet Isaiah. And these prophets would rise up, and they would challenge the people of Israel, and they would say, you know, the reason you're here is because you didn't put God first. But if you put God first, let me say, he's going to rescue you. He's going to save you. He's going to send this Savior to you, okay? Now, after so many years, some of the Israelites, I want to emphasize some of the Israelites got to come back to Israel, to that land, and they rebuilt the temple. Most of the Israelites, most of the Jewish people in Jesus' day did not even live near Jerusalem. They didn't live in Israel. They were still dispersed around the ancient Near East. And here's why that's important. When Jesus, in the first century, comes into the world, most of the Jewish people are longing for a Savior. They're still anticipating a rescue. They're still longing for salvation. And they're waiting, waiting for a Messiah to come. Okay, quick backstory, cliff notes. This is what the first words in Matthew's Gospel are. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now again, if this were in our culture, we'd probably have some kind of thing like breaking news, and we'd have interviews, and we'd have press conferences, but we'd do all of that because we'd want to know who this Jesus was. We'd want his claims to be confirmed. But in Matthew's day, you didn't get press conferences and interviews in 60 minutes. You got genealogies. And before we can even get to the names in these genealogy in Matthew, we need to deal with the first sentence of Matthew's gospel. Because in English, we really miss the impact of what Matthew is saying. So just to show you the kind of the foreign nature of what this is, let me read it to you in Greek. Biblos Geneseos Jesu Christu, Huyu David, Huyu Abraham. Here's what that means, literally, in the word order. The book of new beginnings, the book of beginnings, wrought or produced by Jesus the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. The first two words in Matthew's gospel are book of Genesis. Book of Genesis. Matthews is not, there are four Gospels. Matthews is not the only one to reference Genesis in the beginning, right? What's the other one? John. John. In the beginning. The first words in Genesis are in the beginning. The first words in John are in the beginning. And what John is telling us is that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is trying to communicate something about who this Jesus is. He actually is God. He actually wasn't just there at the beginning. He was the prime mover of the beginning. He is the agent God used to create everything. That's John's deal. He uses the first line of Genesis to communicate that point. Matthew doesn't use the first line. He uses the title of the book itself. Genesis in Hebrew is Bereshit. In Greek, it's Geneseos. It's this word that we have here in Matthew. It's beginnings, the book of beginnings. And you're saying, so what? Well, here's why that's so important. In our culture, what usually grabs our attention is the new thing, right? You see all the stuff come out on Thanksgiving, biggest newspaper, right? It had all the Black Friday sales. 
the newest camera, the newest television, the newest video game. We're all about what's new. The newest book, the newest film, everything that's new kind of catches our attention. And frankly, things go out of style really fast. I mean, there's a new iPhone almost every year, right? And all the stuff that we have to have. Well, in Matthew's day, people didn't care about what was new. In fact, the new things were all suspect. If you wanted to have credibility in Matthew's day, you had to show that what your belief was was very old. Okay? And what could be older? What could gain Jesus more credibility than to show that he was actually really rooted in that original story of God in the very beginning, in the very book of Genesis? Better yet, Matthew is making the audacious claim that with Jesus, he's not only associated with Genesis, but that with Jesus will come a new Genesis, a new creation, a new beginning, a new way of living life. And his whole 28 chapters after that first line are there to back that claim up, which we'll, we'll get to do a lot of that, so don't worry. Now, Matthew says that Jesus is connected with Abraham and David. And even the structure of Matthew's genealogy shows that Jesus is someone who's not just another big player in the Israelite world. He's the guy. And here's how we know that. Um, there are three sections of 14 names in this genealogy. All right? Now, I'm no math guy. Eric, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But three sets of 14 are also six sets of, se uh, six sets of seven. All right? Okay, so that's pretty... That, watch out, Pastor Chris is doing math. That's not good. Six sets of seven. Now, in the ancient Near East and in many places today, the number seven had a lot of significance, okay? It was a very holy number, maybe the holiest of holy numbers. Three is a really important one, too. But seven is quite a number. No more important number would I argue it existed in Jesus' day than the number seven. Now, where is Jesus' name on this list? It is actually the beginning of the seventh set of names. So you've got six sets of seven, and then Jesus begins the seventh set. Matthew, I, that, if you don't even care about that, who, that's fine. Let me just get to the, to the point here. Matthew is letting the people know exactly what he thinks of Jesus. He's saying that this Jesus is the one who was born in the beginning of the first century AD. He's the one that we've been waiting for. He's the Messiah. He's just not another good leader, but he's the guy. He completes all the genealogies. He completes all those great names that came before him. They all point to him. All right, so now the genealogy is not quite as boring, right? Give me something? Okay. So Matthew has an agenda with this. He wants the readers to know what they can expect from this Messiah. What, what is he going to be like? And genealogies were the way you did that. They explained a person's lineage, and from that lineage you could tell what they were going to be like, how they were going to, to rule or to lead. So in our culture, if you're going to apply for a job, right? Let's say you're, how to pick a job, an engineer, right? So you're going to apply for an engineering job. What, what would you do? You, you'd have to turn in a resume, and on the resume, what would be the important things? What, your dad's name or your grandpa's name? No, it probably wouldn't be too important, unless maybe your dad or grandpa was a famous engineer. But that would seem like name-dropping, which would be kind of pretentious in our culture, right? So you'd probably just put your education, 
you know, your degrees on there. And then you would put your, maybe your job experience that you had, why you think you're qualified for the job based on your job experience. And then you would have some references, character references, and they would all be your kind of ex-bosses or contemporaries, but they would be basically in your same generation or once removed. That's how we would do it. But in Matthew's day, if you want to give someone credibility, if you want to apply for the job of Messiah, for example, you wouldn't give a resume. Um, I don't know if there's a job description for that one. There's a few things. But what you would do is you would give a genealogy. You would give a genealogy. And in this genealogy, to be qualified to be the Messiah, you would have to at least come from the line of David. All right? so, so Jesus has got that one covered. You would have to come from David's line, and you'd have to have some big names in your history. So Abraham's name sure helps, doesn't it? Abraham, so he's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. One thing that else that's really important with the genealogy is you wouldn't really want any bad names in there. You know the bad names. You wouldn't really want to be connected with people who would tarnish your reputation. You just want those David names and the Abraham names, but you, know, you wouldn't want anything that would uh, tarnish that reputation. So it begins really strong, Jesus' genealogy. You know, he's a son of Abraham, son of David. Um, but in the first seven verses of this genealogy, we notice some names that don't fit in. All right? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, now, why might these names be a little strange? Why might these be out of place if you're trying to make a really good case that this Jesus character is actually the Messiah, the Savior of the world? Why wouldn't you want these names in there? And just yell them out. Anything that you might have heard before? They're all women, okay? Ladies, that, sorry, that used to be a bad thing. I, I, I got lots of ladies in my... Used to be, okay, till Jesus came. Uh, <clears throat> anything else? So there's all ladies, right? Any other reason why maybe you wouldn't be so proud to have them in your lineage? Come on. Because of their professions, there were some prostitutes in there, right? The savior of the world, coming from the prostitute, all right, all right. It's a good start. Anything else? Going once, going twice? All right, all right, being a little coy today. All right, we can play that game. Yes, in ancient years, your genealogies would include men. Um, even if you had a spectacular mom, you notice there's not there's some there's some definitely some great women in Jesus's lineage that could have been mentioned. Rachel, right? Sarah, uh, some great ladies in there. Um, Naomi, but what we have here, uh, we we have these four women, and that would have been a big strike against Jesus in his culture. The second thing about these women are all four of these women are non-Jewish. So Jesus, in his actual genealogy, has people that weren't even Jewish. And that was a huge no-no, because the priests of Jesus' day, you had to claim that your lineage went to a priestly line, and you had to claim that that line was a pure line. So you've got Tamar, who was a Canaanitess. Rahab was from Jericho, you know, the walls of Jericho, the, the bad city. And then Ruth was a Moabitess. And Bathsheba was married to a Hittite, Uriah the Hittite. None of these people have pure Jewish blood. Okay, so women, Gentiles. And finally, they've got questionable character. Let's put it nicely. Tamar, that's an interesting story. She pretends to be a prostitute, gets solicited by her father-in-law, 
sleeps with her father-in-law and then has a son and from that son comes the people that Jesus come from so that's kind of crazy Rahab was just a straight-up prostitute she wasn't pretending anything she was just she was a hooker in Jericho right and, and what happened was the spies came in and she uh, helped them out and they gave her a new lease on life and so they because of her faithfulness she escaped and her family escaped and she got to, to live on so but it's pretty crazy. So Jesus has got a prostitute and a pretend prostitute. And then Ruth, Ruth is in there. And Ruth's an interesting character. Ruth is a woman of great faith. Great faith. But Ruth is, uh, to put it nicely, she was a little sexually aggressive. Okay, now let me, let me explain how this goes down. She's got her eye on this guy, Boaz, uh, as a suitor, right? Like, he, he could take care of her. He's wealthy. And Naomi says, hey, here's how you get this guy, right? Go in after he's drunk and he's sleeping. And what you do is you just go snuggle up by his feet. Now there's a funny thing about that word feet that the Bible kind of covers up. The f- Hebrew word for feet is regals. Eric knows this all too well. Regals is another word for a man's parts. So do you really think Ruth snuggled up to his feet? Or I'm just saying. So she probably is getting real cozy with Boaz. Why else would he have her spend the night and then want to marry her and all that? So I'm just putting that out there. That could have been what happened. So Ruth is a... she's. She's questionable. She's questionable. And then we have Bathsheba who, you know, I, I actually just a few weeks ago argued I, I don't really see much fault in Bathsheba, but she did technically sleep um, with a married man and she was married herself. And so this, there's this interesting four Gentile women who have questionable moral character in Jesus's genealogy. And this would have been extremely embarrassing uh, for an average Jewish person. A priest would never become a priest with a genealogy like that. And I think there's more going on here than just these questionable women. Why did Matthew include this? Well, first of all, uh, by adding these particular women to the genealogy, Matthew is also challenging a lie. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there's kind of a lie uh, among the, those people that if you were connected to David or, or to a man like Judah, one of these these famous patriarchal or king-type figures, you are somehow inherently better than anyone else. You ever notice when Jesus is arguing with Pharisees and stuff, they're, well, we're, we're sons of Abraham, or we're, you know, we're sons of David. And um, by, by associating yourself with those names, you thought that you were somehow better than the people who weren't. But by adding these women's names in there, Matthew's shaking up the world. You see, David, the supposed man after God's own heart, spied a woman across from his house taking a bath. She's just taking a bath. Married to one of his soldiers, Uriah. A good soldier. A faithful soldier. And David, just because he thought she was hot, has her come to his house. And you don't refuse a king, especially if you're a woman in that culture. Which is why I really put the emphasis on David's sin. David calls Bathsheba over to his pad. David sleeps with her. And then she finds out she's pregnant. You know what he does? He murders her husband. So anytime somebody in these genealogies want to say, I'm connected to David, well, you're connected to a murderer, and you're connected to a sinner, just like these women are sinners. Okay? And then look at Tamar. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. And there's a, there's a law in that culture that if your son dies, the, the father-in-law was supposed to provide another son for the, 
for the, the daughter-in-law. The, and so he tried to do that and it didn't happen. And so what Judah's responsibility should have been was to take care of Tamar, to invite her into his house, to make sure that she wasn't on the streets, to make sure that she was fed and defended. And Judah failed in his responsibility as a man and as a father. And because Judah failed, Tamar thought she had no other recourse. And so she goes, I've got to get a son to defend me. If I, you know, so, so she takes this interesting route, circuitous route. And, um, you know, and Judah is actually shown to be the fool. Judah is actually shown to be the villain in this situation. And so I think that this rattles those Pharisees. It rattles those priests who thought, we're so great. We come from the line of Judah. We're so great. We come from the line of David. And when Matthew's saying, no, nobody is so great. Nobody's that great. Another thing I want to remind us is that, yeah, Matthew wrote this. Yeah, Matthew put these names in there. But he's doing it under the inspiration of Jesus. Jesus wants us to know what his background is. That's powerful. Think about that. Jesus wants you and I to know that these names are in his background. And why? Because he wants us to know that he works through broken and imperfect people. Because that's the only kind of people there are. Jesus wants us to know that he loves and works through broken and imperfect people. Because that's the only kind of people there are. That's what kind of person I am. That's the only kind of people I know. And that's really good news that Jesus wants to emphasize that in the beginning of the story of his life. The priests and rulers of Jesus' day, they focused on the law and they focused on living pure lives. And you know, there's nothing wrong with living pure lives. But when you make that the point, when you emphasize that so much, you're in effect telling people that God will only love you if you meet our standard. Friends, if that is true, then we're in a whole lot of trouble. If that is true that we have to live to this impossible standard, then Advent is all about anticipating our doom, not anticipating our hope. But this boring list of names, this boring genealogy, if you want to call it that, is telling us that outsiders and broken people, just like us, are exactly the types of people that Jesus came to save. After all, Abraham was called out of his land. He was probably a pagan worshiper. He was probably an idolater. He didn't know Yahweh. He didn't know God until God met him. The whole foundation of this line of Jesus is founded on broken and imperfect people. And God's covenant to Abraham. Who is it for? Just his family? Just the Jews? No, it was for all the nations of the world. King David, the ultimate king of Israel, was a man who had foreigners in his army. Remember when David was anointed king, but there was still that big problem of King Saul being in charge? Saul was always trying to kill David. So David respected so much. He respected God so much that he said, you know what, God? You take care of Saul. As far as I see it, Saul is king, and I'm not going to take the throne until you get rid of Saul. So David is running for his life all over, hiding in the wilderness, hiding in caves. And who, what kind of people come around David? Outcasts. People that wouldn't be accepted by Saul. Foreigners. People that weren't Jewish. Some of David's biggest BA Navy SEAL type warriors in his army 
were foreigners, not Jewish people. And so there's a whole history. When you say that, da- that Jesus is son of Abraham, son of David, there's a couple ways to look at that. <clears throat> you could say Jesus is connected to the promise to those guys, and that's true. But you could also say that David's, or Jesus is connected to the promise. That this promise is for all the nations, for outsiders just as much as insiders. It's that lineage that Matthew, and I think Jesus, is appealing to. The Messiah would come as a Jew because he was from the line of David. But he would come for the world. Listen to what Dale Bruner says. Son of David says, Israel, here's your Messiah. And son of Abraham says, nations, here's your hope. Listen, I don't know what you're anticipating this Advent season. And I don't know the longings in your hearts. But one thing you can be sure, you can expect that because the unexpected happened, because a guy with this background is God and became incarnate, he's going to accept you and he's going to accept me. And that's something to look forward to. No matter what guilt or shame or anger or fear or bad stuff in your closet you have, Jesus can handle it. All he asks, all he asks is that we trust him with that. That we turn around and say, you know, Jesus, I've got some stuff I've been dealing with. I've been living in a rebellious way. I want your help to undo that. And I want to trust you that you'll save even me. Let's pray. Jesus, I love the fact that even though you come from a, with an unsavory background, Lord, of, um, of very fallen and imperfect people, it doesn't tarnish your reputation at all. In fact, I can say I respect you even more for it. You are completely glorious and holy. Your love is perfect. You constantly give of yourself over and over again. And frankly, when I'm in contact with your love and your grace, it just points out how much more I need you. And I also confess that that really hurts. It hurts because I want to be good enough. I want to try and earn your friendship. I want to try and, and show you that I, can, um, that I can do it. I can be like you. And the fact is, I can't. I've never met someone who could. And so, Jesus, we, we confess our need for you. recognize that all of our striving without you in the middle is worthless. I pray that you'd help us to trust you for forgiveness of sin and new life. That those wouldn't just be words or ideas or something for the future, but that you would really make us image bearers now. That we would day by day reflect you more clearly to each other, 
and to the people in the world. Thank you that you accept us, even us. In your almighty name we pray. Jesus the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, son of God. Amen.